we're covering a whole chapter this morning, taking big strides here in the book of Genesis. As we go through, as always, if you have any questions, uh, you can text them to our text number and we will take a look at them at the end. Last week, we talked about how um, Moses is doing something with these, these family lines. There, there's there's going to be a break in the family line and there's going to be a a, a line that's going to be moving us towards the blessing, and then there's going to be a line that's not. And he's going to tie up the loose ends of the line that's not, and then he's going to focus on the line of the blessing. And so last week, we wrapped up the line of Cain. The line of Cain is, is kind of put to bed, and now we're going to look at the line of Seth. Seth is the new son of Adam and Eve after Cain and Abel die, um, or after Abel dies and Cain is exiled. Uh, Seth is born. And we begin this section in verse one. This is the family, uh, the document containing the family records of Adam. That's that word that I told you back a number of weeks ago called a toledot statement. Remember, there's 10 of these in Genesis. And every so often the author says, these are the records, or this is the lineage, or this is the story. And it's the same word. So we're entering a new section of Genesis now. The last section was the, uh, the, the history of the records of the heavens and the earth in chapter two. And that section is over. Now we're entering the next section, the records of Adam. And what we have here is what's called a genealogy. It's a, it's a list of names and dates. And it's one of those chapters. There's a lot of chapters like this in your Bible. If you read through the Bible once in a year or once in every two years or whatever, you're, you're gonna hit these chapters all the time and your eyes are gonna roll into the back of your head and you're gonna go, what is this here for? I don't understand this, blah, 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 blah. Get me to something interesting, right? Yes, but <laughs> the authors of scripture are not putting this in here just to make our lives hard. They have a reason for this. And uh, genealogy is a genre of literature. We talked a little bit about genre in the past, but genres are different kinds of writing that have different purposes. Uh, scholar Tim Mackey says, uh, think about it like the cookbook versus the grocery list. Those are two uh, systems of writing, but they have two different purposes. If you use a cookbook like a grocery list, it's not going to be a total waste. You're going to go to the grocery store, you're going to buy some things, but you're probably not going to get all the things that you need if all you use is the cookbook. And then you're also not really going to know what to do with the things that you buy if you don't recognize that the cookbook is trying to teach you something about cooking. Those are two pieces of literature that function differently. And so we've been in narrative. We've been in a story. That's a certain kind of literature, narrative. And, and now we're switching to a genealogy. So we have to ask ourselves, what, what is this genre of literature for? What's it trying to do? And when we think of genealogy, maybe we think of like Ancestry.com. We just want to find out if we, you know, if our ancestors fought in the Civil War or knew George Washington or something. Because, you know, that's basically just interesting. Most of the time, we research our family history because it's kind of fun and, and novel. But that's not what this genealogy is doing. This genealogy has some pur big purposes. It has... Um, there's some big ideas here that we're going to talk about, and there's some specifics. And first, I want to share some, some uh, thoughts from some Bible scholars. This is Richard Weiss. 
He writes, every commentator on Genesis, including the present writer, has spent hours over pencil and paper and recently with pocket calculator, this is an old book, uh, trying to wrest some sense or pattern out of the figures with which the text supplies us. The best conclusion drawn from this effort is that there are other pursuits more rewarding. There undoubtedly is or was a key to these numbers, but whether it has disappeared in transmission or simply now eludes us is impossible to determine. So what this, this scholar and many others are saying is there's something about this list of names and list of numbers that's trying to communicate something. Uh, Lloyd Bailey points it out like this. The first fundamental obser observation to be made is that the ages are not randomly distributed. One might reasonably expect them to end in each integer from zero to nine, were they actual expressions of biological duration. Instead, the vast majority of them are divisible by five. They end in a zero or a five. Among the pre-Diluvians, 21 of the 30 ages end in this fashion. So what he's saying is if you just took a random family and placed the dates of their death on a chart, it would make sense that you'd have dates that end in nine and one and three and seven and four. If you go into... A genealogy in, say, 1 Kings, where it lists all the kings of Israel and, and when they die. That's what you find. You find some, some die, well, this guy was 87, and this guy was 21, and this guy was 63, and it's all just kind of random numbers. But in Genesis chapter 5, almost everyone's date, when they birthed their first son and when they died, either ends in a 5 or a 0. And if it doesn't end in a 5 or a 0, it's a five or a zero plus seven. Now, if you know anything about Hebrew numbers, seven is an important number. But the thing is, nobody can figure it out. Nobody knows what Moses is doing here. And there's been lots of, like the one guy said with his pocket calculator, there's been lots of figuring over the years what exactly does this sequence of dates and ages and numbers trying to communicate, nobody knows. But there are some major themes in this chapter that I think are worth exploring, and so we're going to take a look at a few of them today. The first one is that this chapter illustrates that God's blessing to humanity continues. Look at verse 1 again. This is the document containing the family records of Adam. On that day, on the day that God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. He created them male and female, and when they were created, he blessed them and called them mankind. Adam was 130 years old when he fathered a son in his likeness, according to his image, and named him Seth. So the, Moses reminds us of all the way back to chapter 1 and says human beings are created in God's image. And then he says, Adam has a son and he cre he's created in Adam's image. And what he's telling us is that the image of God, the blessing of God, the mandate that we have as human beings to go out into the world and, and, and spread the, the peace of God around the world, that passes on from generation to generation. We're the call to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it, to rule and reign under the kingship of Yahweh. Every generation is given this blessing. 
And so what should we be thinking about this reality? And, and, I, and I, I think an important thing to talk about because it's in the news right now is just the, uh, the terrible state of abortion, right? We, we are having this renewed political fight right now about um, whether or not abortion should be legal in this country, whether or not uh, women can choose to kill their unborn children. And as Christians, we read this and we say, humanity is given its humanness, not when we're born, not when we become valuable to the culture, but in the very act of passing ourselves down to the next generation. Humanity passes the thing that makes us exceedingly valuable down to our children immediately, not when we become productive citizens, not at birth, but at conception. And this is built into the blessing command that is given to us in Genesis. As Christians, we want to be people spearheading the fulfillment of that blessing in the world. And so we need to be people who stand up and say what, what, we, what the, the culture calls being pro-choice is actually murder. It's destructive. It, it doesn't value the human life involved in this situation. Um, the New York Times is, I, I grew up believing that it was like the worst paper ever, and it's not the best, but they let a lot of conservative Christians write for them and props to them for that. And a couple of weeks ago, Karen Swallow Pryor, who is um, a English professor, did an article on the new Texas abortion law and the state of abortion in America. And, and she writes, in America, of all the pregnancies that don't end in miscarriage, nearly one in five is aborted. This is a society in which things are wildly off track. A world like this spun by forces that lead to that many lives being undone doesn't happen by chance. It takes all of us. It takes a village to make abortion seem like the best choice. And she's a staunch pro-life advocate and I really value what she has to say there. As, as we see this culture of death, we have to recognize that it's not something out there. It's part of the society that we inhabit. If we want to see generations of humanity healed from this cultural evil, we have to be participants in that healing because we have been uniquely appointed as God's representatives on this planet to do so. And so we, as a church body, we support the work of Open Arms, which is our local crisis pregnancy center. Um, but as individuals, we can do that. As individuals, we can support families who are seeking adoption. We can, maybe some of us who are, who are of childbearing years would consider being an adoptive family themselves that we should make this place a place of grace for women who find themselves in crisis pregnancy situations. As we engage with politics, we need to be people that, that support politicians that, that don't just want to end abortion, but want to make, to bring solutions to the areas of our world where crisis pregnancies might be more prevalent. Because we have been made in the image of God and because we recognize that, we are to be people that are proactively pursuing life. Second thing I see in this passage is, is the idea of legacy. I made a chart. Um, this, is, this is the ages of all of the patriarchs in this list. Adam is on the left, Noah is on the right. Um, and there's quite a bit of overlap there, isn't there? 
the, the reality is Adam is alive almost until Noah is born. Can you imagine old, old, old Adam and Eve, the people that walked with God in the garden, sharing their stories with their great, 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 great grandchildren? Multiple generations are shown in this chapter, passing down their history, their calling, their vocation. As the world gets darker and darker, when we get to chapter six, it's going to take a pretty nasty turn. It, there's a family line that is holding on to this knowledge that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. And we, in the church, we're a multi-generational family too, aren't we? There is a solid line that stretches back from you all the way back to the apostles. The apostles had students in the first and second century, and those students had students, and those students had students. And over 2,000 years, somebody told somebody else about Jesus until the day that you became a Christian. And there's a, a timeline that goes all the way back. We are the latest generation in that long lineage. So what do, we, what do we do about that? What, would she, what should we glean about that? Well, parents, um, train your kids to follow Jesus. Teach them about his life-giving grace. Model the character of God in your homes. Sunday school is great, but mom and dad, teach your kids to pray. Teach your kids to read the Bible. Sing together in your family. Remind them of the grace of God on their lives. One of the greatest things that I, I find this very difficult to do, but the, one of the greatest things to do for your kids is to apologize to them when you sin against them. We are people who are passing down a legacy of faith. I heard, a, I was talking with a friend recently and, and he was talking about a family in their church who they're Christians, they have young children and they've decided we don't want to force our beliefs on our children, we're just gonna like keep them from learning anything about the faith until they get older to make the decision on their own. Don't do that. <laughs> don't, don't, don't let your children go on their own. Be an influence of goodness and grace and the gospel in your home. Teach them the story of God. Single people, maybe, maybe you are no longer married, maybe you're not yet married, maybe you have no plans to be married, but be connected to the family of God. It's another pitch for a community group. Be, be a part of this community in a real relational way. Older people, the younger people in this room need your wisdom. They need to hear the things that you've gleaned over the years that you've lived your life. Young people, the older people in this room, they need to hear your perspective. It's different. It might scare them, but it's good to share where maybe you're at as a millennial or a Gen Z person or whatever, whatever the name is anymore. The perspectives are important. I received a letter last week from an older gentleman who had attended our church for about three weeks and um, he, I, hadn't, I hadn't seen him for a while. And so I reached out and, and he said, thank you. And I really appreciated your church and it was great. Um, but it was, 
it just really felt like none of the young people wanted to get to know me. And it just broke my heart because we generally skew pretty young. All of our young people are sick today, most of them. Like all our young families are at home with their kids. But by and large, this is a pretty young church. And I get it. It's, it's easy to come to church and find your friends and live in your little circle. And, and it's, it's, it's good and fun to relate to people that way. But, but to hear that someone in his 60s came in and, and, and he, he listed a couple guys who reached out and, and were, were kind, but he just felt overall he didn't have a place here. And there's a, there's a, lot, of, there's a lot of factors to that. But the bottom line is, is that's the way he felt. And that's, that shouldn't be the case. We should be a, a family that is excited about getting to know one another. Not because we, you know, listen to the same music or like the same things, but because we are followers of Jesus. We're called to make every effort to love one another well. And so while we continue to work to make this legacy of faith in this community, we, um, we need to take every opportunity to engage it. This passage highlights the continuation of the blessing passed down through the generations, but it also highlights the continuation of the curse Verse 5, then he died. Verse 8, then he died. 11, 14, 17, then he died. 20, then he died. 27, then he died. 31, then he died. Genesis 2.16 says, The Lord commanded the man, you are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. And so we see God's word comes true. They die. Their bodies no longer nourished by the tree of life. They just wear out. Imagine the first time that happened. We saw Abel murdered a couple weeks ago, but, but for a person, a human body to just stop working anymore, nothing could have prepared them for that. Death is a, a strange phenomenon. It's something that's completely natural to our experience, but it also seems like something foreign. We know that it will mark the end of all of our lives, just like every generation before us. It's totally normal, but we hide from it. We run from it. Whole industries make billions of dollars helping us stay one step ahead of death, but we still die. Our bodies still just wear out. And even though the, our entire conception of existence is aware of this fact, nothing can prepare us for when it happens to someone we love. Because in that moment, death is not normal. Death is a thief, a villain an unwelcome intruder. Death isn't just a disease that we've all been infected with. 
No one is morally to blame for getting sick. James 1 says, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God since God is not tempted by evil and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he is drawn away and enticed by his own evil desire. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. When sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Death exists in our world because of sin, because of Adam and Eve's sin initially and because of our sin in every subsequent generation. Death has become our constant companion because we are enslaved to it. Adam and Eve chose it. We choose it too. Death isn't just the outcome of our rebellion. It's the constant state of our existence. Adam and Eve brought us into union with death. Shane Wood in his book, Between Two Trees, right? Sheltering us from the presence of God, the shadow of the tree of death, ensures death's indoctrination of Adam's kin. Our union with death thoroughly penetrates our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that our wombs rebel, our desires divide, and creation resists as our interactions with each other and with God slip into death's grip. Death is our warden. Death is our end. Death is our Eden for we are one flesh. Death isn't just something that happens to us. We have made it our master. Paul in Romans writes, therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man and death through sin, in this way, death spread to all people because all sinned. In fact, sin was in the world before the law, but sin is not charged to a person's account when there is no law. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who did not sin in the likeness of Adam's transgression. He is the type of the coming one. Paul says death is not just an effect of sin. Death rules over humanity. And when we read this list of 10 generations, this is what we see. Death after death after death. But there's still a promise this is what we see in verse 28. Lamech was 182 years old when he fathered a son, and he named him Noah, saying, This one will bring us relief from the agonizing labor of our hands caused by the ground the Lord has cursed. So this is a different Lamech than Cain's Lamech. Just a common name. But Lamech is Noah's father, and he is inheriting, because of this community, he's inheriting this legacy, this hope, that someone is coming that will fix this. We've been 10 generations after this curse, after our first father, Adam, sinned and got kicked out of the garden and death entered into this place. And it's hard. God promised to make everything right one day. Maybe it's my son. Maybe he's the one that rescues us. Even though they continue to live in God's good world, carrying on with the mandate that they've been given, life is hard, work is hard, they are dying. If we throw back up the chart with the ages one more time, sorry, I didn't make a note for that. Adam dies when Lamech is 56 years old. This is around the time when it is common for us to begin to lose our parents, to begin to wrestle with our own mortality. 
but Lamech sees the death of the very first human being. The very first son of God, made from the dust by God himself. The one that the promise of life and the warning of death was actually made to. And when Lamech is in his midlife, sort of, that Adam dies. I, wanna, I want us to just think about that. Maybe you've lost a parent or a grandparent or a spouse or a friend or a child. The weight of that, the grief of that, the feeling that nothing makes any sense anymore. We sang this a little bit this morning, Psalm 89 says, how long Lord, will you hide forever? Will your anger keep burning like fire? Remember how short my life is. Have you created everyone for nothing? What courageous person can live and never see death? Who can save himself from the power of Sheol? Adam, the one that walked with God in the garden, he dies. And a few years later, Lamech says, maybe my son is going to be the one that's going to fix this. We know that, that Noah wasn't ultimately the one to fix it. But even now, we, we look back to a promise and we look forward to its completion. We know that there is another one called the Son of God. 1 Corinthians 15 says, The first man was of the earth, a man of dust. The second man, Jesus, is from heaven. Like the man of dust, so are those who are of the dust. Like the man of heaven, so are those who are of heaven. And just as we have been born the image of the man of dust, we will also bear the image of the man of heaven. There is a new son of God that has come to replace the death of Adam with his own new life. Romans 6, are you unaware that all of us who are baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Paul says that all of us are connected to Adam and we are connected in Adam to death. But those of us that have been reborn, reconnected to Christ, we've been redeemed from death and we're connected to his eternal forever life. Jesus, not Noah, has brought us relief from sin and death. Jesus says in Matthew 11, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Noah's name means rest. Lamech says, Noah will bring us relief or rest. But Jesus says, no, it wasn't Noah, it's me. I will give you rest. 
So what does that mean for us? What does it look like to, to take off Adam and put on Jesus? What do you have to do? What kind of person do you have to be? How does this work? There's, there's one little glitch in this genealogy that I think helps us. Look at verse 21. Enoch was 65 years old when he fathered Methuselah. And after he fathered Methuselah, Enoch walked with God 300 years and fathered other sons and daughters. So Enoch's life lasted 365 years. Enoch walked with God. Then he was not there because God took him. Enoch walked with God. He's the only one in this list, except for Noah, because Noah's got more to talk about later, that doesn't die. Enoch did not die. He spent time with God, and he got closer to God, and closer to God, and closer to God, and finally God just said, you might as well come home with me. Throughout the Bible, God calls people to walk in his ways, to walk before him. Walking is a metaphor for the direction and emphasis of your life. We're told to walk worthy of our calling, to walk by faith, not by sight, to walk in love. Colossians, 6, or Colossians 2 says, So then, just as you have received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to walk in him, being rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, just as you were taught and overflowing with gratitude. Enoch walks with God closely enough so that God just takes him home. His life is so in step with what God is doing that he becomes more of a citizen of heaven than a citizen of earth. I like to walk with my wife. We oftentimes on Saturdays, we, we walk from our home, which is just a couple blocks away from here, downtown to get coffee. And um, the coffee's great, but the point of the walk is just to spend time together. It's, it's a way to get out of our house away from our children that we love very much, and uh, just, just be together, right? We have a goal. We have a direction. We're going to get coffee, but, but mostly we just want to be together. So we take walks. A couple, about a month ago, we were vacationing, the two of us, in, uh, on the coast of, of Washington and Oregon, and, and we were in Astoria, we were looking for something to do, and we found that there's this giant tower in Astoria at the top of this hill. And we were down at this restaurant by the um, river. And so I put into Google Maps how long it was going to, how big of a walk is this? And well, it's about a 45-minute walk. And like, well, we have all day. It's nice. 45 minutes isn't a big deal. What I didn't notice was that it was like a 1,500-foot elevation. And uh, for those of you that know my wife, she has some, some allergies, some asthma, some breathing, breathing issues. Um, and we started out on this walk and we kept going and we kept going. And, and pretty soon it, it started getting rough. I, I had a t-shirt on and shorts and it was just drenched in sweat. And, and I'm just, I'm trying to make sure Joanna doesn't fall over. And, and she's just like cursing the day she met me. And that's not true. She's much nicer than that. 
But I had made the decision that we were going to climb this tower. And she said, okay, I'm going to go with you. And she was, she was going to walk with me. She wasn't happy about it. She didn't enjoy it. When she got to the top, she wouldn't even go to the top of the tower because she just had, she was done. But she was committed to me and she was going to do it. And it was a pretty terrible experience. If you're a Christian here this morning, in what way do you walk with God? Is he, is he going somewhere and you're just getting dragged along? You're just trying to keep up, hoping it'll all end soon? Is it like, we, got, we just got to make it up this hill. I know what I have to do and I just have to, I have to breathe hard and, and get in there and do it because I'm going with God. Or is your walk more just about being with God than it is about getting somewhere? Enoch, Enoch walked with God. I don't, I don't know that he was going anywhere. He was just spending time with God, spending his life with God. We often think that we're called to live for God. He is out in front leading and we are following up the hill, straining our bodies and minds to complete the task at hand, to be devoted, to be committed, to be Christians. And that is often important sometimes. But more than that, we are called to live with God, to rest in his presence, to spend time just being with him, walking with him, enjoying his company. We're not called to work for God's love. We're called to receive it. Back in that verse in Colossians, Paul said that we are to be overflowing with gratitude. I can tell you my wife was not overflowing with gratitude the day we walked to the tower in Astoria. But we are overflowing with gratitude when we just get to walk down to the coffee shop and enjoy each other's company. Listen to Sky Jatani on this. He says, knowing God's love means experiencing it, and that means learning to be still. In silence and solitude, the hidden things of our souls begin to surface, including our fears and attempts at control. We face the discomfort of our own evil and selfish desires as they emerge from the shadows. The anger, shame, guilt, and grief that we've pushed to the background with endless activities and flickering screens comes rushing at us. In silence, we are knocked down by the overwhelming noise of our inner lives. If we stay there long enough, however, something remarkable happens. The inner voices telling us we are not safe enough, smart enough, good enough, beautiful enough, successful enough, popular enough. All of the voices of religion and culture tempting us to seek more control begin to fade away as the only voice that really matters speaks the only truth we need to hear. God meets us in the silence and whispers, you are loved. This is what it means to live a life with God. There are times 
to do things. There are times the scriptures tell us to strive and to work and pursue. Those are all realities that we should be about. But at the base level is our relationship with God centered on getting stuff done or just being together? Enoch, and I I can't pretend to understand what's going on here with Enoch, but his life was so settled on his relationship with God that God just eventually said, you know what? You can come stay at my house. This is where, this is where being a pastor gets tricky because I can tell you to read your Bibles. I can urge you to develop a consistent prayer life, practice generosity, manage your social media intake, pursue holiness, and all those things are good. And we can all leave this place and start sweating again, climbing up that mountain. But Jesus promises us rest, not exhaustion. Are we people that are being shaped by that rest or are we people that are being burdened by the work that we think we have to complete? In 1 Thessalonians, Paul says something really interesting. He says, we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers and sisters, concerning those who are asleep, people who have died, so that you will not grieve like the rest who have no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again in the same way through Jesus, God will bring with him those who have fallen asleep. For we say this to you by a word from the Lord. We who are still alive at the Lord's coming will certainly not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the archangel's voice and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are still alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Enoch is a preview of what God's people will all experience one day. Many of us will pass through death into newness of life with Jesus. But some of us are going to be caught up to meet Jesus without dying when he returns. Either way, you and I will one day be completely united with Christ and freed from death and its curse forever. This genealogy reminds us that we are human beings made in the image of God, given his blessing. And that lineage goes all the way from Adam to today. It also reminds us that we are all under the curse of death. But it points towards the rest that we find in Christ and the call of Jesus to walk with him to be with him, to rest in him, to not strive and fight, but to just spend time walking with God. Let's take a look at some questions. 
got here? Question one. It's interesting that Methuselah and his son Lamech died pretty closely in time to each other. Is it fair to assume that God was wanting this particular lineage to have passed before the flood instead of having to suffer by dying through it? Maybe. Um, Methuselah dies the year of the flood. Um, so whether he dies before the flood starts or whether he dies in the flood is a matter of conjecture. So some would read this and say, Methuselah was a godly man and God wanted to spare him the flood. And so he died the year of the flood before it started. And, and others would say Methuselah wasn't a godly man and he died in the flood. Um, we just, we don't know. But yeah, they both, they both die right before the flood. What's the significance of Enoch having been taken to heaven rather than dying? Rather than Moses and Elijah, is it possible that Enoch and Elijah could be the two witnesses mentioned in Revelation because both were taken to heaven rather than dying? Um, maybe. So in, in the book of Revelation, if you're unfamiliar, there is a section where there are two witnesses who come from God to proclaim uh, the gospel and judgment on the nations. If you haven't read Revelation, it's a weird book. Um, and there's a lot of speculation that there are two people that we don't have a record of their dying in the Bible. Elijah is taken up to heaven uh, in uh, 1 Kings, I think, and Enoch. And so the idea that in, in Hebrews, it says that human beings die once and then the judgment. There's a, there's a verse about judgment there. But there's this kind of offhanded comment about how we only die once. And so these two witnesses in Revelation, they die. They're killed by by the beast and his, his people. And so the logic goes, well, if they're going to die, they can't be people that have already died. I'm not super willing to tie God's hands that much. I think God can do whatever he wants in that case, but um, it's possible. As far as what the significance of Enoch um, not dying is, I, I think primarily uh, it's it's a... It's just a little parentheses in this genealogy of death, that there is, there is this person that is doing something that is seeking after God in a way that um, is worth, worth talking about, worth reflecting on. Um, and I, th I think that's primarily what's going on here. We're going to talk about it next week. If you've read ahead to the beginning of chapter six, it's super weird, um, but there's a lot of Jewish history that puts Enoch in the middle of what's going on in chapter six, and we'll talk about it. Um, the uh, New Testament quotes Enoch as a prophet and says that he um, was a preacher at this time that he lived and, and tried to turn people from their wickedness. And so there's a lot of other backstory about Enoch, but um, with regard to the two witnesses in Revelation, I mean, it's all kind of speculation, but it, it's, it's not impossible. So good questions. This, this book is, is wild. Like if for I mean, many of us I know have read through the Bible a lot over our lives and some of us maybe were just approaching it for the first time and um, there's just a bunch of crazy stuff going on. And at the end of the day, I'm so blessed by the fact that there's just these little hints of Jesus that the, the life that we have in Christ is, 
is tied up in these chapters that, that cover all this crazy stuff. Um, and you got to dig a little to find them, but, but it's there. So we're going to take communion. Um, we, we take communion every week. We, we take the, the bread representing the body of Christ broken on the cross. We take the cup representing the blood of Christ shed on the cross. The goal, the end, the purpose of the Christian life is to be with God. And Jesus makes this possible through his own union with death. He enters into the death that we've all inherited and he defeats it. Death cannot hold him captive. Jesus rises from the dead three days later and he opens the door for us to be completely, fully reunited with him, free from the curse. And Jesus, he invites us to walk in him, to hide our lives in his, and to reap the benefits of this new kind of life. And the communion meal is, among many things, a reminder that we are in him and he is in us, that his life is the thing that provides us nourishment. And even if physical death is something that we still grapple with because his kingdom is not yet fully here, we know that we are ultimately saved from sin and death by his death and resurrection on our behalf. So I'd invite you to um, come take the communion elements back to your seat. And as we sing, just reflect on, on your communion with God. What's your relationship with God look like? Is it always climbing up a hill, being exhausted? Or are you in a place where you can just rest in the presence of Christ and enjoy his company? And if you haven't been in that place, if you would say, no, my life is stressful and hard and it seems like there's just so much going on, just take the next few minutes to practice resting in the presence of Jesus. You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.